strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks so much for being here. Um, it is great that, for the most part, COVID-19 has become a backstory. It is no longer the headline, and it's not updates every single day. We know that tomorrow morning at about 8.30, the Arizona Department of Health Services will update the weekly numbers on how things are. The numbers have been down dramatically from where they were uh, just a few months ago, which is all very good news. But, but... Um, Dr. Fauci still making the rounds. I want you to hear a couple of things about what's happening because we still have we still have here mask mandates in the school districts. Not all of them. Phoenix Union High School District still mandating masks. Why? Nobody knows. Uh, But they are. So Dr. Fauci was on the BBC and he was asked about initial lockdowns and restrictions. Were they too much? You know, I don't think we're ever going to be able to determine what the right balance is. I think the restrictions, if you want to use that word, which I tend to shy away from lockdown, there's certainly prevented a lot of infections, prevented a lot of hospitalizations and prevented a lot of deaths. Obviously, when you do have that kind of restriction on society, there are unintended negative consequences, particularly in children who are not allowed to go to school in the psychological and mental health aspects it has on children in the economic stress that it puts on society in general, on individual families. Obviously, those are negative consequences that are unintended. But they were also consequences that were realized very early and changes weren't necessarily made. So I wanted to start there because he was also asked, are we going to go back those restrictions. Well, I don't want to use the word lockdowns that has a charged element to it, but I believe that we must keep our eye on the pattern of what we're seeing with infections. Right now, the cases continue to go down, the hospitalizations go down, and the deaths go down. We are going in a gradual way towards what we all hope will be normal. Having said that, we need to be prepared for the possibility that we would have another variant that would come along. And in a thing change and we do get a variant that does give us an uptick in cases and hospitalization we should be prepared and flexible enough to pivot towards going back at least temporarily to a more rigid type of a restriction such as requiring masks indoor it is once again it says we had unintended consequences, which I gave them every benefit of the doubt of that, that you are fighting something that you don't know everything about and learning new information. You then change your directives. The very beginning of COVID, if you remember, one of the things they talked about was how long it lived in the air and how long it lived on surfaces. And one of the concerns was public places and surfaces where you could pick up COVID-19. This studio that I'm in right now, we share this studio with all the other hosts. We were wiping this studio down with a bleach solution after every single use out of an abundance of caution. It smelled like bleach in here and it was necessary. There was a spray bottle of it in the newsroom and we were very, very careful about it. As the information about that changed, that wasn't what was important. They changed it to something else. But the idea that in one breath you say there were unintended consequences and now you're saying we might go back to some of the same old things. Well, now you have the information on the unintended consequences. Why aren't we doing something more about that? 
So now we know that in public transportation, airplanes, things of that nature, you're required to wear a mask. There's nothing you can do about it. I've flown. I think it's a nightmare. I feel bad for anybody who works in that environment because you can't take your mask off. From the minute you walk into an airport until you walk out the door of the airport on the other end, you are in a mask. So the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis, has got a lawsuit to try to end this. It's turned the airlines into having to police this. Uh, It's created a lot of unruly uh, passenger situations because it's so frustrating for people. If you have somebody sitting in the window seat and they're nibbling on peanuts for two and a half hours, they can have their mask down. You have the person in the middle seat uh, that is not eating. If they just wanted to read a magazine without the mask, then somehow that would be a big problem. And he's 100 percent right. He's 100 percent right. Um, I talked earlier. I had talked about homelessness and covid because I the two of these mesh with a story I have in front of me about homelessness. But there was a report about the PPP loan fraud. There was one guy in South Florida. that got seven million dollars in a PPP loan and then bought a mansion and expanded a house and did some other things, said he had 400 employees. He didn't have any. And so that's one of the dramatic cases of fraud. They say up to 10 percent in fraud. Well, there was eight hundred billion dollars given out, which means $80 billion in fraud, $80 billion in fraud. And I think that, again, that is part of the the government machine. It is inefficient by nature. And if more people saw it that way, you would understand why people like me, even if you didn't completely agree, you would understand why people like me think that a smaller government, less involvement is best because by nature, it's inefficient. I'm one of the people, I'm kind of an efficiency person. If I can do two things at once, I do. I want to accomplish the goals as quickly as possible. I'm not a journey person. Anybody that's ever driven with me, I'm a destination person. I want to get there. I want to get there fast. I don't care about the journey. I want to get there. And I've always been that way. So I am as concerned that I'm going to defend anybody else that's on my side of the political aisle that isn't in favor of government involvement in so many different areas. I'm going to defend them and say most of us would say to you, we are as concerned as anybody on the other side of the aisle about the problems that we face. Hunger, homelessness. Those are issues that are big to me. I would love to be a part of a solution to those problems. But I think relying on the government to solve those problems is not good. The food assistance programs that we have are not temporary for many people. For a lot of people, they become dependent on the government dole, and it keeps them locked into the place where they are. That doesn't mean that I want to see people go hungry. I'm not yelling at somebody, get a job, when they're panhandling. But when you look at the private organizations, and I talked earlier about Circle the City and how it involved with COVID, um, I, I really hope you'll look into that organization because what they do for the medical needs of homeless people and what they did to stem the tide of massive um, outbreaks of COVID in the homeless community was nothing short of stellar. And it's a private organization that depends on the donations of people, which means they have to show efficiency with the money they're given, and they have to show results in the programs they get behind. Those are the people that you want solving the problems. Not that government is evil. 
It's just not anywhere nearly as efficient as the private sector that's laser focused. When it comes to the programs at St. Vincent de Paul and their ability to have transitional housing for people, and I've told, I've mentioned this many times on the air that what they do with homeless people, that they bring them in and whatever it is, whether it's a legal issue, an addiction issue, a mental health issue, working them through a process to get to the other end of this process while they're housing them so that their pictures is on the, their pictures are on the wall of keys, meaning they've gotten their own home back. They're living somewhere on their own and not in a shelter. That is an efficient program that shows immense success that gets people off of the dole. And, you know, the same thing with St. Mary's Food Bank and United Food Bank. You look at their programs of how they're feeding people so efficiently. Those are the organizations we should lean on when issues like this happen. So the PPP loan fraud thing shows you the inefficiency of government by nature. Were those loans necessary to prop up businesses? Absolutely. But the fraud shows you immense inefficiency. If any one of the organizations I just mentioned to you were so inefficient with the money that they are given by donors that they had 10% fraud, no one would donate. So they're much better by nature. That was my defense of people like myself that just because I don't believe that the government should be fixing it doesn't mean that I don't agree that there's a problem and it needs to be fixed by all of us. I just think the private sector is a much better place to do it. In a moment, the biggest news stories of the day so far. It's called Did You Hear This? We'll do it in a moment. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. All right, biggest news of the day so far. Did you hear this? Did you hear this? Broomhead's reaction to the hottest news stories. President Biden kind of backing off his remove Putin from power remarks over the weekend. He says uh, those were his personal thoughts and doesn't suggest that he's pushing for regime change. The fact of the matter is I was expressing the more outrage I felt toward the way Putin is dealing and the actions of this man. Just just brutality. Shouldn't uh, the president be as equally outraged at how his policies are brutalizing bank accounts here in America? I would just say that the president of the United States, when speaking in Warsaw, was not only speaking on behalf of the American people, he was speaking on behalf of NATO countries. And he uh, later on said that what I'm doing, what I did was giving my personal opinion on the brutality of what I witnessed. I can understand that we all see this brutality and think that it's horrible. And we all have our personal feelings about what would be best for the world to happen with Vladimir Putin in or out of power one way or the other. But when you go and there is a consensus of policy and how we are going to face this challenge and what united front we're going to show the world, and then you get up and say that, it sounds like everybody is saying that, which is why so many people had to go and denounce it and had to come back and say, that's not how we feel and we're not changing things. So the president made a major mistake. Is it the end of the world? No, it isn't. But it is a major policy mistake when you do that, when speaking on behalf of everybody else and you go off script. And it's something he's done quite Quite often, and he needs to stop doing it because it's not a good look. Arizona's statewide average at the gas pumps hit a record $4.69 today. On average, Mike Noble with OH Predictive Insight says their new poll finds 80% of Arizonans expect those gas prices to be even higher in the, me- in the next month than they are now. Only 15% expect them to be the same or lower. Throughout history, the U.S. has seen inflation on gas prices, but never this high. 
So my question to you on this, Mike, is how big of an issue will gas prices be at the ballot box in November? I think it's huge. I think the fact that the Republican Party nationally is doing voter registration drives at gas stations, and that's a real story, tells you that the people understand that the policies of this administration have led to higher gas prices. Now, they were accelerated with the war and because of Russia and its oil production and natural gas production. But there is no doubt that in this country, prices are higher because we're not energy independent and they hold this administration accountable for that. So this is going to be a huge issue come election time for sure. And they're right about the prices going up. The summer months are ahead. The demand is going to be going up. The prices are going to be going up. You're listening to Did You Hear This? We do it every day at this time to get you caught up on the headlines. And this morning, you asked Maricopa County Sheriff Paul Penzone what he thinks about Julie Gunnigal saying she won't enforce abortion laws if they're on the books, assuming she's elected county attorney. Now, while he didn't address her or that issue specifically, the sheriff did say... I do not believe that the county attorney's office, the attorney general's office, the sheriff's office should be political in any context. In law enforcement, you have to treat everyone with the same level of respect and equality, and you have to have a commitment to the laws as they are written because that's democracy. And you'll talk to her tomorrow morning more about that issue, but what kind of relationship would Gunnigal have with law enforcement if she picks and chooses the laws she wants to enforce? That's what I don't know, and I think that's what my concern is, and I want to be very, very clear. This opinion is mine. It is not the opinion of anybody in law enforcement whatsoever. My concern is, if you want to be an activist, I think that's a wonderful thing, but to be an activist in a job like the, uh, the Maricopa County Attorney's Office is the exact wrong place for activism. You have to be level-headed and you have to treat people and the laws equally. Imagine again, if imagine if we had a county attorney that said, I've got a brother that is a heroin addict and I don't like to see heroin addicts imprisoned, so I'm not going to I'm not going to prosecute these heroin cases and I'm not going to ask for jail terms because I don't think that's the right thing to do. We would lose our minds. And in effect, this is what you do when you say, I don't care that that law is on the books. I won't enforce it. That's a major concern for me. The NFL just issued some new rules about hiring practices. All 32 teams will be required to hire a minority or a woman in a prominent offensive coaching position. The league says the goal is to create more highly sought-after minority head coaching candidates and ultimately more minority head coaches, which a lot of people say is the problem right now. What do you think of that rule, Mike? I'm torn, and I'll tell you why. I think that what they want to accomplish is 100% correct, and that is to get people in a position to succeed. And I think that that's the one thing that's lacking because we have seen at every level of sports, whether it's entering the league as a player or it's entering leagues as coaches or off, you know, front office management, that when you give people an opportunity, they excel. This league has shown diversity on the field, but it isn't about that on the field. There doesn't have to be a certain number of players of any race or color on the field at a time. So that's the other side of the concern is when you start mandating it, are people being given opportunities because they deserve it or are they filling a quota? And no one should be put in that position. You should, people should trust you are being hired because you're the right person for the job. I know what they're trying to accomplish. I'm just concerned that what they are going to do is pigeonhole people and it's going to turn out to be more of a political mess than it is a solution to the problem. 
And that's, did you hear this? And you know, the one thing I, I love about sports, and I think most of us do, is it's an escape. And it's the one area where you are judged on the merit of how you perform. Um, you know, the NFL had a gay player come out last season. I think he made the announcement. People said good for him, and nobody cared. Nobody cared. Um, it was a big deal when the first uh, black players entered any league, and they side by side with white players. It was a big deal then. No one thinks about it. Black quarterbacks in the NFL, no one cares anymore. And that's the way it should be. You should be judged on the merit of how you play. And the same thing should happen in coaching. And there is an issue. There is a big disparity in race in coaching at the highest levels in the NFL. And I understand their desire to fix it. But do it in a way that allows people that deserve credit for their skills are credited for their skills and not judged by the color of their skin. And I don't know how to do that. I just hope that doesn't happen in this situation. Um, Coming up in a moment, we're going to talk about the tax increase proposals that are out there, what we know and what the White House is saying about them. We'll talk about it next. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Thanks for being here. The president says that fiscal responsibility is one of the values of his enormous $5.8 trillion budget proposal. It also is packed with cash for the climate agenda. Um, this again, um, I know I'm being very repetitive about these things, and they are – this is the number one issue for the administration, and they are going to pack billions of dollars in. We have a $5.8 trillion budget proposal. Nothing gets left out. Again, it's not a matter of saying we have a limited amount of money like you run your house. We have credit cards for emergencies. Many people do. And listen, I'm not Dave Ramsey, so I'm not giving anybody financial advice. But we understand what most people do with credit. You'll buy a car on credit or you'll use a credit card or have one for an emergency if you don't have enough cash on hand to pay for something if there is an emergency. We understand the principle of of credit, of debt. That, you know, some people think it's good. I'm not advocating for it, but we understand how a household runs. If you ran at a deficit and then you ran at a deficit next year and you kept getting more and more credit cards and you kept running up debt, they'd shut you down eventually. Eventually, you couldn't do it. And our country continues to do that. Um, on MSNBC's Haley Jackson reports, White House Council of Economic Advisors member Jared Bernstein responded to a question on whether the minimum tax proposal in Biden's budget is the first step toward further tax increases by stating that the proposal injects a huge dose of fairness into the tax code (laughs) and try to figure out how we can fix this problem that billionaires tend to pay an effective rate of 8%. So I think that is an interesting thing. Um, A couple of things that you need to hear on on this has to do with what we're doing um, and how this is supposed to work. This is one of Biden's economic advisors explaining what this is supposed to do, this budget. Try to figure out how we can fix this problem that billionaires tend to pay an effective tax rate of 8%, below what a firefighter or or, uh, uh, a teacher pays in many cases. And that's because our tax system leaves wealth out of its base. And this billionaire's minimum tax disallows that, and it requires billionaires, the top 0.01% of the income scale, to pay at a minimum a 20% tax rate, not the current 8%, raises $360 billion over 10 years and injects a huge dose of fairness into the tax code. 
here's where you're allowed to use math tricks because now what they're doing is they're not lumping in your income and how much money you're making. They're lumping in the value of the things that you own. So I want you to think about what you own, the value of your home. Imagine if it wasn't just your W-2s and how much money you made last year they figured in your taxation. If they did this to every American, if it's fair, if this is fair, a fair way to treat billionaires, it's a fair way to treat Everyone. And it's not just billionaires, by the way. These are people that have a value, a, a value or a, um, they have their worth of a hundred million dollars. Now, these are wealthy, wealthy people, which is so funny in this country that no one wants to defend wealth. It's insane. So if you're if you have a, a net worth of a hundred million dollars, this applies to you. So what they're going to do is not just tax your income. They want to tax your assets. They want to say if you have five houses and collectively those five houses went up in value six million dollars in the past year because of the real estate market doing so well, you're going to owe us 20 percent of that increase of six million dollars. That's, in effect, what they want to do. Imagine if they did that. If it's fair for one, it's fair for all. So this is the problem. There are we're going to raise taxes here, but you're going to get a deduction there and you can you can depreciate this and you can write this off and meals, clothes and work equipment and things. And so everybody's got to write off and then you need an accountant. And what can we get away with? Not get away with in the sense of cheating, but get away with what is legal. Can I write that off? Can I write this off? Yes, save all these receipts. If you use your car for work and you document the miles you drive, you can deduct so much money per mile so that all of these things go into income taxes. And that's where it becomes unfair. Why we don't have a flat tax. But the attitude of punishing the rich is the problem that I wanted to address. The fact that there is the people that are making our laws are very rich themselves. Nancy Pelosi, if she is not the richest member of Congress, she is one of them. The wealth that she has with her husband. Do you think that they're going to pay this tax? You know, when you have people that set up a trust and you avoid taxes that way, why is any of that considered a bad thing? If you are doing everything you can within the rules... To minimize what you spend. This is the other part of the hypocrisy that makes me laugh. I guarantee you that almost all, if not every single one of these advocates for raising taxes on the rich, and they are rich themselves, I guarantee you they spend thousands upon thousands of dollars on accountants to minimize the amount of tax they pay. If you really wanted to be... Um, an example, if you believe that you sh- your fair share because you're so wealthy is more than you could get whittled down by an accountant that knows what they're doing, stop hiring an accountant. Use the EZ form. It's a one-sheet form. Fill out how much I made last year. Don't deduct anything you know that's off that sheet. Just use that. I made this much money last year. How much do I owe you? Now at least you're leading by example. But as long as we have a tax code that continues to allow people to write this off and write that off and do this and deduct that and do you've got all these tables and you can deduct this amount and deduct this table from that one. And this is the amount you have to pay or you get to get back. As long as that continues to happen, you're going to have experts that are doing it within the system 
that are legally paying less and less and less and less in a percentage. But to arbitrarily say we are now going to we are going to tax you on the value increase of the things you own year over year is should scare everyone, everyone. And that's exactly the direction they're heading. Talked earlier about schools and the need in Arizona to step up our game and how bad it's gotten. I want to explain how bad it's gotten again and some of the solutions that people are looking at. So before we close it out, we're going to do that again. Strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. A few minutes left in the show. I want to talk about education because numbers are out. There's a story from the Arizona Capital Times. Third grade reading proficiency dropped by 11% during COVID to 35%, which means 65%, 65% of Arizona third graders cannot read at grade level. Math is even worse. Before COVID, 41% of eighth graders were ready for high school math. Now it's down to 33%. The numbers are staggering. So I, I talked about this earlier, and I kind of want to repeat part of it, but I want, to ha- I want people to think about this. If we are failing our children, and you and I elect school board members, we elect the school boards who hire the superintendents, who lead the districts, who spend the money, who set the curriculum, and who teach our children. Teachers want to teach. Um, the teachers I know are amazing human beings. They are dedicated to their craft. They take pride in wanting to be educators. I hate the politics of education. I think it's disgusting, to be honest with you. I hate the politics of education. Education itself is something that I'm passionate about for the very simple reason that I didn't take education seriously as a young person, and I had teachers that did. When I was very young, I was a very good student. I learned quickly, and I learned how to read. I was reading above grade level at a very young age, and I had no idea, no idea how much I would depend on that skill the rest of my life. Mathematics. I actually said to my high school teachers, when am I ever going to use algebra again? And then I became an electrician at 18 years old. Every single wire sizing, conduit sizing equation we do as electricians are algebraic equations or or geometry. It is what we do. Thankfully, I had the tools to learn. So if we are not preparing these third grade kids to read at a third grade level and we're letting them go on to the fourth grade and we are, we are leaving them with one hand tied behind their back and expecting them to be successful. And then when they get to the high school level, they're not ready to read in high school. Then when they get to college, because we still give them a high school diploma and they get on to college and higher learning, they're ill prepared and have to take remedial classes. But what about the kids that don't go to college? What about the kids that go into the workforce and they're ill-prepared to learn what they have to learn for the jobs that they're being hired for? What remedial classes are there for that? For the young men and women that leave high school and go into jobs where they have to learn a skill and their bosses are going to train them, if they can't read at grade level, if they can't perform mathematics at a post-high school level, what chance do they have? And the answer is they don't. Um, They have a very minimal chance. And the other selfish side of this is here in Arizona, we have really stepped up our game with the availability of careers. 
And so corporations that have very high paying jobs are going to hire very qualified people. How horrible is it going to be if they're bringing people in from other states because the people from Arizona's education system aren't prepared for those jobs, aren't prepared to learn those jobs? And these are the mistakes we are making. So when you hear me complain, and I complain a lot about some of the other things that are outside of the basics in the curriculum, outside of math and reading and science and all of these other important things, because whether you think they're important or I don't, shouldn't be the conversation. Are they more important or equally as important of the core skills that these kids need? So why would we include critical race theory? Why would we include social emotional learning? Why would we include a gender identity and any of this education to kids before they can read at grade level. I mean, I don't think the age appropriateness of the sex education stuff and the gender stuff and everything else, that is a fight that we should and could have. But just from a simple priority standpoint, look at the numbers. 65% of third graders can't read at third grade level. And 67% of 8th graders can't perform math to get ready to go to high school. Those numbers should shock all of us. So we, in society, we look at a successful model and we copy it. That's what we do. Whether you're a football coach in the NFL and you see an NFL offense that's stellar, so you want to copy some of that. Or if you're in business and someone's got a way of doing things that's just better. If we... If we in our society look at education models that work, look at the CTED programs. I've talked about EVIT many, many times. Look at the graduation success rate that they have. You look at the success rate of sending kids to college, the kids that go through a CTED program are. Look at the basis schools and the successful model that they have in place. Why aren't other education districts, why aren't other school districts modeling whatever it is that makes them successful? Why aren't we trying to duplicate those programs? If it's working at a basis school and it makes basis schools one of the top performing schools in the entire nation in a state that's performing at about 47th or 48th, why aren't we modeling those school districts? Why aren't we looking at the core education to make sure kids have the basics? I mean, I'm asking a real question that a real-life business owner would be asking about his or her failing business. And it's one we better ask quickly because we're losing ground. We're not gaining it. All right, if you're a social media user, hit me up. I am at Broomhead, K-T-A-R on Twitter. That's where you can find me personally, at Broomhead Show. Update you about guests and things on the show. Mike Broomhead, all one word on Instagram is how you can find me there. Stay in touch. When we're not on the air, I'll be back tomorrow morning around 8 a.m. God bless. God bless.